Hey Stewheads, welcome to a creepy episode of Remnant Stew. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm Steve. With Halloween right around the corner, we'd like to share with you some Halloween trivia and spookiness of all kinds. Do you have an appetite for the curious and downright bizarre? Then you've come to the right place, my friend. Pull up a chair and grab a spoon for today's intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. You know, Steve, I absolutely love Halloween. It's one of my favorite holidays and always has been. Oh, yeah. I, I love it, too. And all the history and the legends and the lore that surrounds it, I think it's the one holiday that just really lets your imagination go wild. You remember being a kid and uh, all the fun, looking forward to it, picking out your costume. And in our town, there was always a Halloween cost, uh, carnival at the elementary school, and so that was always fun to go to. But I think about when I was a teenager, a group of friends of mine and I had a— um, at a Halloween party, and um, what was kind of cool is that a local funeral home had loaned us an old casket. Uh, wait, being, wait, an old casket? Yeah, casket that, as in a used? It, it was a used <laughs> casket. Um, evidently, somebody had died in uh, Venezuela, and uh, the body was shipped back to the States in this uh, kind of a wooden casket, and the family decided they didn't want to use that casket, so they, they bought a, a newer one. Oh, wow. And so they that... left the uh, <laughs> left the old casket, uh, you know, for the funeral home to loan out to parties, which was pretty exciting. I drove around with it in the back of my pickup truck for a couple of days and oh, thought I was goodness. thought I was really swift. So um, that's one of my fun memories of of Halloween. Um, you know, uh, but there's a lot of interesting things about Halloween. We've got some interesting trivia. Um, and so let's just jump right into it. Why not? Halloween originated from an ancient Celtic festival. Okay, wait. Or would it be Celtic? Celtic. Celtic, yeah. Celtic festival. Yeah. You know, the Boston people, they, they made, made it Celtic, Celt- right? Uh, they <laughs> did, and they're wrong. <laughs> it would be Celtic, right. A Celtic festival. According to History.com, the Halloween we know today can trace its roots back to the ancient Celtic uh, end of Harvest Festivals of Sandheim, S-A-M-H-A-I-N. But that's not the way you really say it. It's pronounced Sawin. Sawin. Right? Sawin. Right. Even though it's S-A-M-H-A-I-M, it's pronounced Sawin. During Sawin, people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off evil spirits. In the 8th century, in an effort to spread Christianity, Pope Gregory III decreed November the 1st as All Saints Day and incorporated some of the rituals of Samhain. All Saints Day was also called All Hallows, and the night before, when the traditional Samhain festivals used to take place in the Celtic regions, was called All Hallows Eve. Now, you know what? We've been spelling it wrong all this time, because it really, uh, instead of H-A-L-L-O-W-E-E-N, that last E-N really should be preceded by an apostrophe, because it was... And a, a shortening of Hallowed Eve or Hallowed Evening. And right. And so uh, Halloween right. was a shortened of, ha- of Hallowed Evening, Halloween. But I think we've been spelling it that way for so long, it's technically correct yeah, now, right? Probably, probably Webster wouldn't argue too much with you, but originally it would be a contraction of that original uh, spelling. Now, right behind Christmas, Halloween is the second most commercial holiday in the United States. You I can might not believe have realized it. that. But, oh, uh, I can believe it. Americans spend about $6.9 billion on Halloween. 
most of it for candy. You know they start selling it in the stores in August. Well, that candy's not going to stay around in the house until uh, <laughs> October 31st. I think they're counting on that. And uh, mostly it's the adults, I think, that are eating that, uh, that early-bought candy. Um, also spent on costumes and parties. A surprisingly big chunk is also invested in Halloween costumes for pets. People dress up their dogs. Uh, dogs I, oh, why not? Primarily, yeah, for Halloween. Uh, it's kind of hard to dress up a cat. They don't like it too much. <laughs> but dogs, they'll, they'll tolerate it. Out of the fi- uh, I'm sorry, out of these $6.9 billion spent annually in the United States alone, $2.08 billion are spent on Halloween candy. That's one-third of the amount spent <laughs> total on candy itself. Now, how many sweet treats can you buy with that money? Roughly 600 million pounds, which would equal about six Titanic ships, you know. That's a lot of candy. Well, I put in my share. Well, I do do my bit, too, you know. What's your favorite candy? Uh, I think we talked about this before. It was Reese's Cups. Yeah, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are, in fact, the most popular uh, candy in 2019. Um, Didn't you, as a kid, like rate the different houses that you went to trick-or-treating? The ones giving out chocolate were the best. Hershey bars, you would make a second trip around to, perhaps. Even even the ones that gave out the bigger bars, you'd go Uh, back for. But the worst, I think, is that's That's Phil Phil. over there. Uh, But I think the worst is the circus peanuts. Can we all? Yeah. agree on that or sometimes somebody you know give out uh, uh or something really you know something kind of a healthy snack yeah, yeah no. we yeah that, those are the houses that uh got egged well the average american or you told everyone to skip yeah that's right <laughs> put an x like uh, put an x in front of the house and don't go there the average american eats about 3.4 pounds of halloween candy each year the weight of a small chihuahua dressed in a halloween <laughs> costume <laughs> now sugar Kids consume about 7,000 uh, 7, calories on Halloween. 7,000 calories, that would be equal to about 66 bananas to reach that many <laughs> calories. So there you go. Um, a lot of money spent on Halloween. Now, are you afraid of Halloween? There actually is a fear, and it's, uh, it's referred back to that original festival. It's actually called Solenophobia, the fear of Halloween. Oh, wow. Okay, so now, so I have a story about an unusual couple, and this, yeah, this is, is they loved <laughs> they loved cemeteries, and I I just have to stop and say that not it's weird that as a culture we've kind of gotten away from that, but people used right. to go to cemeteries and picnic, right, and that sort of thing. It didn't have the taboo. cemetery cleanings and right, and, you know, and, and so cleaning I, up. Right. I have this tradition with my daughter that. Uh, I would drive her to school one day a week, and right. we would go get donuts. And the donut shop in our town is right. right next to the cemetery. Exactly. So we call it Donuts with Dead People. <laughs> we would go and park at the cemetery and eat our donuts. And so Donuts with Dead People. Well, old cemeteries are interesting. I, I You know, as classes, we do grave rubbings from time to time. And, uh, you know, the, the grave rubbings meaning putting a piece of paper over the old headstone and Tracing it with a pencil and trying to be able to read the the markings on it. A lot of the times, the when you can't read it, right. when it's so worn away you can't read it, you you can get it that way uh, by doing a grave rubbing. Uh, well, this this couple loved a cemetery so much, and um, the story comes to us from the Associated Press in an article from February of two thousand seven. It's not the traditional "till death do us part." 
But Scott Amsler and Miranda Patterson believe getting hitched in a graveyard is just thinking outside the box. Uh-huh. I see what they did there. Come <laughs> September, the, <laughs> they, I wonder if they had a, a coffin that they ran. Anyway, I know where they could have gotten one. <laughs> come September, the Illinois couple expects to pledge their undying love. Oh, this is just full of puns. Uh, <laughs> among the dearly departed in the St. Louis suburbs city cemetery, all, even though those who approved the request are dead set against oh, it, seeing it become a trend. This is my kind of article. What? How come I didn't get to read this one? Go ahead. <laughs> the wedding wouldn't be out of character for Amsler 27, a computer expert for a financial company by day and rehabber of old hearses by night. Well, somebody has to nice. do it. Yeah. <laughs> the graveyard, he said, has just a certain tranquility and thriftiness for nuptials. The young couple insists will be small, private, and traditional, except for the bagpipes. Amsler's refurbished hearse and the throng of eternally silent witnesses. People are going to think uh, how we they want. I don't actively try to convince people that my interests are normal or logical, Amsler said. I'm not a freak or Satan worshiper or cult member. It just goes with our theme. He just likes cemeteries. He yeah, does like right. cemeteries. And I like his attitude. There you go. Yeah. Deep yeah. down, the couple said it just seemed right. Amsler and Patterson, who recently moved to Collinsville, Illinois, became an item not long after they met in November 2005 at a birthday party where Patterson, 21, was to have been the celebrant's blind date. Amsler showed up in a retooled hearse that caught Patterson's eye. Uh-huh. I wanted a ride in it, but chickened out at the last minute, she said. Well, by their first date, weeks later on New Year's Eve, Patterson knew Amsler was the one. Not long after, she quit her factory job in Sullivan, Montana, and moved in with Amsler in Troy, Illinois. Amsler proposed late June, affixing to the side of his 1965 hearse, which the two called Edgar. Edgar the hearse. Edgar the hearse. A plate with a simple message, will you marry me? (laughs) <laughs> Seconds later, the ring slid onto the crying Patterson's finger. She received Edgar as an educa- as an engagement gift. Wow, he gave her the hearse? Ah, yeah. Man, he really <laughs> was in love with this girl, love, wasn't he? Right? Yeah. And had only one stipulation. The wedding had to be outside in a gazebo. Her worries were laid to rest (laughs) (laughs) while she and Amsler drove to her dad's house. While traveling on Interstate 44, Patterson spotted a gazebo on a hilltop only to find that it was in a graveyard. No worries. The view was just gorgeous, she said. (laughs) I said, this is where I want to get married. When the couple called last fall for permission to use the three-acre cemetery, which dates back to the Civil War, city clerk Joanne Hone, I think, uh, told them the local cemetery committee would have to decide. So when I spoke to them, they were just a normal young couple who wanted to have a wedding someplace they thought was nice and serene for a very small, intimate wedding, Hone said. They weren't any cult group or anything like that. Bill Homan, a 71-year-old alderman of the, on the cemetery panel, wasn't sure what to think. It's strange to me. This is kind <laughs> of an unusual thing around here, he said, of the country town where the roughly 5,700 residents Roll up the sidewalks at 9 o'clock and everyone goes to bed. <laughs> the committee last month signed off on the couple's request de- despite concerns about the appropriateness of the setting for the occasion and fears that a burial might be scheduled for the same time. I'm thinking that's pretty easy to avoid. Just I, bet, don't I think they schedule. could just postpone it for right, a, an hour, half an or, hour so. or so anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Homan, though, vows to introduce a measure to make Amsler Patterson nuptials the last among his town's tombstones. 
once the horse is out of the barn, you have to have an ordinance. Yeah, everybody who wanted to come get married in their cemetery. <laughs> On the other hand, that could be a real Start fundraiser for that cemetery. That's in the right. Town. And, you know, what's, what's wrong wedding, with that? Uh, wedding locations are not cheap these days. Right. But Patterson said she and Amsler have respect for the living and the dead. We're not going to do anything stupid or horrible. We just want to have a wedding, she said. Some of the ladies I work with said, are you crazy? Why would you get married in a cemetery? Does it matter where we get married? Just as long as we get married. Now, that's a great attitude. You could like start and end there. There you go. <laughs> Good one, Phil. Good one. Well, I love that story. And we got a few more uh, facts about Halloween, as we were uh, talking about. Uh, originally, talking about trick-or-treaters, you actually had to dance for your treat. Uh, most experts trace trick-or-treating to the European practice of mumming or guising, in which costume-wearing participants would go door-to-door performing choreographed dances. You know, put on a little. Yeah, they, they probably practiced and rehearsed ahead of time. Maybe had a choreographer. You know, you you stand over there, you jump over there, and that sort of thing. So uh, a flash also, mob. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, flash mob. It dances, songs, and plays in exchange for treats. According to Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Plex, celebrating the family. The tradition cropped up in America, where it would often take place on Thanksgiving. I have never heard of that. Yeah. In some early versions of trick-or-treating, men paraded door-to-door and boys often followed begging for coins. Most of these early tricks or uh, trick-or-treaters were poor and actually needed the money, but wealthy children also joined in the fun. Door-to-door begging was mostly stopped in the 1930s. You'd think they're in the Great Depression, I guess, maybe that people didn't have anything to give at that time. But it reemerged later in the century uh, to distract kids from pulling Halloween pranks. Tricks or treats. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Now, did you know that Halloween is actually more Irish than St. Patrick's Day? I I actually did know that. It did come from Ireland, yep. as we uh, are to the from the Celts, which were largely from Ireland. Halloween's origin comes from a Celtic festival for the dead, as we said, called Samhain. Uh, Celts believed that the ghosts of the dead roamed the earth on this holiday, so people would dress in costumes and leave treats out on their front doors to appease the roaming spirits. Granted, the Celts were not solely based on uh, in Ireland, where these customs started taking shape around the first century B.C., but as will be talked about more in a little uh, later section, the Irish Celts were the ones who invented the jack-o'-lantern. The Halloween prototype was eventually disrupted and adapted by Christian missionaries into celebrations closer to what we celebrate today, including partly by the not-so-Irish St. Patrick. And this is a little <laughs> bit of an aside about a different holiday— St. Patrick, uh, whose work was later mostly recognized by Americans. St. Patrick's Day was basically invented in America by Irish Americans, said Philip Freeman, a classics professor at Luther College in Iowa. Um, According to National Geographic, the holiday was only a minor religious holiday in Ireland until the 1970s. So it's really not all that Irish. St. Patrick was uh, honored by Irish Americans more so than the uh, Irish back in Ireland. And I think the Irish today are, they're so surprised right. at how crazy we get on St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. Day right. Any excuse to be crazy. That's right. Any excuse to drink exactly. green beer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now, if you'd been around in the earliest Halloween celebration, you might have worn animal skins and heads. According to ancient Roman records, Tribes uh, located in today's Germany and France traditionally wore costumes of animal heads and skins to connect with spirits of the dead. This tradition continued into modern-day celebrations of Samhain, 
the Celtic holiday that inspired Halloween in America. On this day, merrymakers often dressed as evil spirits simply by blackening their faces. The leaders of the sign uh, parades wore a white sheet and carried wooden horse head or a decorated horse skull. A modern Welsh version of this uh, it still goes on today. Uh, jack-o'-lanterns now. That's a big part of Halloween. Haven't you, you remember carving a pumpkin? We... You know, I have three boys, and right. as they've grown older, you know, trick-or-treating, they grow out of it. We Every single year, we have what we call the pumpkin slaughter. Right, and still we, have a pumpkin that's carving. That's right. We have pumpkin carving contests, them, their friends, my nieces. It's a big thing at our house. Well, jack-o'-lanterns were actually once made of turnips, beets, and potatoes, not pumpkins. You might not know that. The jack-o'-lantern comes from an old Irish tale about a man named Stingy Jack. According to folklore, Stingy Jack was getting sloshed with the devil. <laughs> now, why, this is a great Irish story. He was getting sloshed it with the devil when, when, when Jack convinced his drinking partner to turn himself into a coin to pay for the drinks without spending any money. Jack then put the devil-shaped like coin into his pocket, which also contained a silver cross that kept the devil from transforming back. Jack promised to free the devil as long as the devil wouldn't bother him for a year, and if he died, the devil could never claim his soul. Jack tricked the devil again later, getting him to pick a piece of fruit out of a tree and then carving a cross into the bark when the devil was on the branches. The trick meant that the devil couldn't come down. That meant another 10 years of devil-free living for Jack. But when Jack finally died, God decided that he wasn't fit for heaven. Go figure. So the, yeah. So the <laughs> devil, uh, but the devil had promised never to claim his soul for hell, so he stuck in between. He went off to roam the earth with only a burning coal for a light. He put the coal into a turnip as a lantern, and Stingy Jack became Jack of the Lantern, or Jack-o'-lantern. Based on this myth, the Irish carved scary faces into the turnips, beets, and potatoes to scare away Stingy Jack or any other spirits of the night. I like that. I like that a lot. That's where the Jack-o'-lantern comes from. Now, you might not know that Halloween used to be a great day to find your soulmate. In some parts of Ireland... People celebrated Halloween by playing romantic fortune-telling games. According to Nicholas Rogers' Halloween, from Pagan Ritual to Party Night. That's a great title for a book. (laughs) It's a big title of a book, isn't it? These games allegedly predicted who they'd marry and when. Since Halloween, like Valentine's Day, was one of the main celebrations of the year where young people could mingle with the opposite sex, it was also considered a good day to scope out a sweetheart. I think it's still considered that uh, these <laughs> days, as we have seen some of the Halloween costumes that people wear, adults wear these days. <laughs> In America, young people, particularly girls, continued the old Irish tradition. Games like Bobbing for Apples tried to predict future romances according to the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Right? Now, in some American towns, Halloween was actually referred to as Cabbage Night. This came from the Scottish fortune-telling game where girls use cabbage stumps to predict information about their future husbands. Of course. I want to, yeah, stop. Let's stop and imagine that now. <laughs> okay, you've, you've gone out and cut the cabbage, and so let's go out and look at the stump that's left over. <laughs> that's going to tell you what your boyfriend's going to be, Mary. <laughs> I, does it say what he – I mean, does it tell him what he's going to look like? Evidently, I mean, they, were, uh, they got all kinds of information <laughs> from looking at the cabbage stump about who oh, wow. who their future husband was going to be. Well, now in the United States, in fact, uh, particularly in Framingham, Massachusetts, 
teens skipped the fortune telling and simply went around throwing cabbages at their neighbors' houses <laughs> on Halloween night. Well, that seemed to you know kind of. Uh, it changed into to throwing eggs. Right. That's, that's any excuse to be crazy. Well, I guess right. the cabbages would cabbage would make a good thud though when they hit. You know, that, if you, that's true. Right. Uh, this was no isolated tradition in the late 19th century America. Country boys reportedly rejoiced in throwing cabbages, corn, and assorted rotten vegetables uh, to, uh, uh, to on passers-by as they went by their house. Now, here's another fact that you might not be aware of. Some animal shelters won't allow the adoption of black cats around Halloween for fear that they'll be sacrificed. It's unclear mm. whether black cats are actually sacrificed around Halloween, but various animal shelters refuse to let people adopt these cats in the lead-up to the holiday. Uh, Linda Gardner, director of the Cat Cradle in Morgan, uh, Morganton, North Carolina, uh, told the Huffington Post that the shelter does not adopt out black cats during the month of October because of superstition and concern that the wrong people who might harm them might adopt these cats. This type of ban is starting to wane, however. Uh, when reached for comment, Emily Wise, vice president of shelter research and development at the ASPCA, said years ago this used to be pretty common, that shelters would not adopt out cats during Halloween for fear of something horrible happening to the cats. But we don't hear about that too much anymore. In fact, many shelters are actually holding a special black cat promotion around <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> so you can adopt your special black cat then. Now, I believe this. This is another fact. Studies have shown that Halloween actually makes kids more evil. Every school teacher in the world knows that this is the truth <laughs> <laughs> because it actually comes out. But I can also remember my own uh, youth. Uh, <laughs> as IO9 points out, that's a website, uh, putting costume-wearing kids into groups and introducing a clear object of desire, such as candy, has been shown to lead to uh, de- uh, deviant, no, de-individualization. Uh, let me say this again, de-individualization. The psychological term explains what happens when a group of maturing young minds begin to care less about the consequences of their individual actions, leading them to th- do things that they might not do alone, or herd mentality, perhaps. One study in particular found that unsupervised costumed children in groups were more likely to steal candy and money from than uh, both non-costumed kids and children that are not in a group. So if you get them in all costumes and put them in a group, they're likely to do more things that are that they wouldn't do otherwise. Another similar study found that masked children were significantly more likely to take more Halloween candy than they were supposed to if they believed there was no adult supervision. Now, I know this is true because I mentioned the Halloween carnival at my elementary school. I never will forget having a mask going up to the little ticket booth for one of the events, and my second-grade teacher was the one handing out the tickets, but I was in costume. I had a mask. I stuck my tongue out at her inside my inside my mask. mask. I just enjoyed that to myself. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, so we have a story um, about a castle, an interesting castle. Now, what would Halloween be without a castle, of course? Right, and this is, yeah, this is a very uh, spooky castle. So in the second half of the 13th century, and I need to say that this comes from atlasobscura.com. Oh, I love that website. I do too. Um, In the second half of the 13th century, a mysterious Gothic castle was built. 
It wasn't near any water, wasn't strategically important, and didn't seem to have anyone living in it. So why was this random fortress built? Well, according to local legend, it was meant not to keep things out so much as to keep things in. And what were they keeping in? It was meant to trap demons, at least according to their legend. I see. Supposedly, a gate to hell opened on the craggy Czech mountain. The castle was constructed around the portal, and a chapel was plopped directly atop the hole to keep evil monsters from spilling out of the underworld and slipping into the human realm. Okay, I can see how that would work. (laughs) Folklore says the supposed gate to hell was so deep, no one could see the bottom of it. And those who did attempt to enter the dark orifice encountered demonic human-animal hybrids. Hmm. People claim cars wouldn't start near the castle, and strange, bleeding beasts (laughs) still roam the area after dark. Wow. In reality, the castle was built as an administrative center. Oh, that's so boring. I I know, right? (laughs) What a letdown. What a letdown. To oversee the management of royal estates. But it is still... but it still has some real-life demons in its past. And I have to say that the castle is built in a square shape, and there is a hole in mm-hmm. the middle that is— Underneath, Yes, right. it's very deep. Um, so, I mean, I understand where all of these, these legends are coming from, but in reality, Nazis occupied the fortress during World War II, right. and multiple myths abound about their supposed occult involvement. They were very much involved there. in the occult, for sure. right. And it's possible uh, today to tour the mysterious castle and scope out any hauntings for yourself. You can view They'll probably the, just show you the administration office. <laughs> <laughs> Here, Here's our secretary. Here's our typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> you can admire the old frescoes and murals adorning the building's walls. Oh, interesting. That's an interesting place. Who's the Czech castle? Republic is beautiful. I've been there, and uh, it's gorgeous. So, yeah, but uh, a lot of interesting places to see there. Well, now back to some Halloween trivia. Did you know that candy corn, I mean, you like candy corn. Okay, so that is a very uh, <laughs> debated candy. I love candy corn. I do, too. I but think it is very good. hated by a lot of people. I, I, I wouldn't probably go out and, and pick it first choice, but if there's candy corn in a bowl, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll it's eat, I'll sugar. Eat. Yeah. Really? You're going to argue with this? Yeah, <laughs> <right>. Exactly. <laughs> Though many would argue that candy corn tastes like chicken feed, that's not how it got its original name. How do you know? Well, <laughs> I've never tasted chicken feed, honestly, to be honest, right? but it kind of looks like that. Created in the 1880s by George Renninger, it was sold in the masses by Golitz Confectionery Company, which is now the Jelly Belly oh, Company, wow. at the turn of the century. Because corn is what is used to feed chickens, the creation was called Chicken Feed, and the box was marked with a colorful rooster. So you get a box of candy corn with a colorful rooster called Chicken Feed. But it's probably uh, best not to feed it to actual chickens, or they will not roost at night. I think they would be staying up jittery, jittery chickens. <laughs> That's what happens to the kids, too. Now, the most lit jack-o'-lanterns on display, 30,581. That's a lot of jack-o'-lanterns. That is, yes, that and is a you, lot. That's according to the Guinness Book of World Records. And in order to see those 30,581, you have to go to the city of Keene, New Hampshire, uh, one of those lovely New England states. Uh, Keene has broken the record eight times uh, since the original attempt. That's a lot of pumpkins. That, Must be pumpkin country there. That is crazy. I'd be interested in learning more about that. Like, how do they light all of those at one time? Uh, and, and keep them lit, right? Then it's really stinky a couple days later. Yes. That's, so are they used later for pumpkin chunking? Pumpkin pie. Pumpkin, yeah, pumpkin, pumpkin chunking. Yeah, they probably uh, do have some kind of pumpkin chunking thing. Yeah. Pumpkin smashing, right. 
Um, now, there's an inter- there's a lot of interesting folklore, of course, around Halloween. One old English folklore about Halloween is full of superstition and fortune-telling that still lingers today, like bobbing for apples or avoiding black cats. But one piece of folklore says that if a young unmarried person walks down the stairs backwards at midnight while holding a mirror, the face that appears in the mirror will be their next lover. Uh, we don't recommend trying this, okay? It's, a, it's dark. You're going to walk down the stairs backwards, <laughs> backwards. holding a mirror looking at midnight, in the mirror. looking in the mirror, and a face is supposed to appear in the mirror. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. You're going to marry an EMT or a paramedic as well. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> Most likely a bump on the head is coming your way. Um, all right. Now, down in Mexico and in uh, Latin American countries, uh, this is a very important uh, time of the year called um, Dia de los Muertos, or the Day of the Dead. But actually, it's more than one day. It takes place October 31st through November 2nd in Mexico, uh, and I think also in Guatemala, Honduras, and some other Central American countries. Um, On November the 1st, Dia de los Inocentes honors children that have died, and family members decorate graves with baby's breath and white orchids. On November 2nd, Dia de los Muertos, uh, families honor adults who have died, and they place orange marigolds on grave sites. I love that that celebration. I think right? that's very neat. The original Aztec celebration actually lasted a month long, but when Spanish conquistadors came over to Mexico in the 16th century, they merged the festival with the Catholic All Saints Day. Today's celebration is a mix of both Aztec rituals uh, rituals of the skull, altars to the dead, and food with Catholic masses and prayers. Now, who doesn't love the 1978 horror film Halloween? That's a real classic. It can be easily recognized in just one image, the psychotic Michael Myers in his iconic pale face mask. Without a doubt, it's one, of, one chilling look that has struck terror into the hearts of partying teens and slasher flicks. <laughs> The movie was actually filmed on such a tight budget that the crew used the cheapest mask they could find, a $2 Star Trek (laughs) Captain Kirk mask. Yeah, that's actually uh, William Shatner's mask uh, that has been painted white. Uh, They spray-painted it, and they reshaped the eye holes, making William Shatner look incredibly creepy. Which isn't really (laughs) too hard to do. Anyway... Moving on. <laughs> well, he's still around, though. He, still he keeps is. Coming along. And I yeah. like William Shatner, I but I, I did know that. And you can you can tell it. You can look right. at the mask and see that, that that's William Shatner. Now, up in the state of Iowa, the people in Des Moines, they have this hilarious tradition called Beggar's Night. The night before Halloween, young children in Des Moines hit the streets for Beggar's Night. According to an article in the Des Moines Register, the event began around 1938 as a way of preventing vandalism and to give younger children a safer way to enjoy Halloween. Beggar's Night is very similar to regular trick-or-treating, except kids are required to tell a joke, poem, or perform a trick for this treat. The best part, the jokes are notoriously grown-worthy, such as, if April showers bring Mayflowers, what do Mayflowers bring? Pilgrims. The Pilgrims, of course. Right. right. Yeah, those are good dead jokes right there. Right. Writing it down. Uh-huh. Phil would be good yeah. at it. Put, put it. put it in your notebook, Phil. Now, it's been rumored by many people, but there are some pretty notable folks that have actually seen ghosts in the White House. The White House uh, has a reputation of being haunted, not just around Election Day, but actually uh, throughout the history of the White House, 
at least in the last 150 years. Now, the most common ghost sightings are of Abraham Lincoln. Um, He was actually spotted by Eleanor Roosevelt and also by Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands when she was visiting the White House and by none other than Sir Winston Churchill. All of them claim to have seen Lincoln's image in the White House. Other paranormal guests include Andrew Jackson, David Burns, and Abigail Adams, the first first lady to stay in the White House. That is very interesting. Did you know that uh, Lincoln actually had a premonition of his own death? Right. In the White House. Looked and in I'm the mirror, doing, right? Yes. He looked in the, I'm doing this from memory. I don't have yeah. it written down. Yeah, he saw uh, his reflection, or he didn't see his, He saw his reflection, but beside his reflection, he also saw a specter right. of himself, pale and everything. And he took it as a premonition of his own death, and that happened right before he was shot. That's exactly, yeah. He said he, he would win. I think it's, he said he would win the re-election, but he wouldn't fill his second term. Again, that's the, the way he took it. There's a uh, lot of paranormal that surrounded Abraham right. Lincoln and Mary Todd. Very interesting. Now, here's an interesting story about a fellow named Raymond Robinson, an urban legend that turned out to be true. A lot of urban legends do have a grain of truth in them. He was known as the man without a face. Uh, We love all things surrounding legend and lore here at the Remnant Stew. We especially love urban legends, but uh, as we said, they almost always uh, have a, a germ of truth in them. Uh, but it gets more sensational as time goes along, and the different generations kind of add more details to it. Uh, sometimes, though, the story really are true. In western Pennsylvania, there was the urban legend of the green man, or Charlie No-Face, a figure that haunted the roads at night, walking in the dark. The story is that the green man, as a boy, wanted to see into a bird's nest, so he climbed an electric pole and managed to shock himself. He fell to the ground and lost his eyes, nose, mouth, and one ear and one arm. Then, when he grew older, he hid in an abandoned house. The famed nickname of Green Man comes from his skin, which was purported to be green because of the electrical shock he suffered in uh, the stories. Well, in actuality, Raymond Robinson was a man who, as a nine-year-old boy in 1919, did climb a pole to look at a bird's nest and was electrocuted by a trolley electrical line that killed a boy a year before. Robinson survived, though, defying doctors' expectations, but he was severely disfigured. He lost his eyes, nose, and his right arm. As an adult, Robinson lived in Koppel, Pennsylvania with relatives and rarely went outside during the day because of his appearance. However, at night, he went for long walks on quiet stretches of State Route 351, feeling his way along with a walking stick. Groups of locals regularly gathered to catch a glimpse of him walking along the road. Robinson usually hid from his curious neighbors, but would sometimes exchange a short conversation or a photograph for a beer or cigarettes. Some were friends, others were, I'm sorry, some were friendly, and others were cruel, but none of his encounters deterred Robinson from his nightly walk. Once, though, he was struck by a car, actually more than once he was struck by a car, and he stopped his walk during the last years of his life, and he retired to the Beaver County Geriatric Center, where he died in 1985 at the age of 74. Mm. Through several generations, Robinson's story has been passed on so many times that his name and his real history have been overshadowed by the ghost story that grew out of them. Can you so, imagine driving along the dark right. road and, and just just really quickly you see a flash of a just man a glimpse, that, yeah. that doesn't have a face? And we have a picture of him. 
We have a picture of him on our social media. Taken by one of those neighbors, I suppose. Yeah, That's right. So the next story we have is the Aztec death whistle. Get ready to be creeped out. So this story comes from discovery.com by Ruben Westmus. If your worst nightmare had a soundtrack, it would feature this whistle. Oh, man. We're not going to lie. The sound of the death whistle is the most frightening thing we've ever heard. It literally sounds like a screeching zombie. We can only imagine what it would be like to hear hundreds of whistles from an Aztec army on the march. We're not entirely certain what the whistles were used for, however. They may have been used as an intimidation tactic in war, but there's one aspect of Aztec society in which they certainly played a role. Human sacrifice. In in 1999, a 20-year-old sacrificial victim was discovered by archaeologists clutching a death whistle in his hand. He was found in a temple to the wind god. I'm uh, I'm not even going to. Ericotl. Ericotl. And at this. Tlatlolato. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We butcher words here. Um, suggesting to some scholars that the whistles were meant to evolve, to evoke, sorry, the howling wind. In any case, modern musicians and anthropologists have grown more interested in the role the whistles played in the ongoing indigenous history of Mexico. One of those scholars isn't an anthropologist or a musician at all, however. Robert Velasquez is actually a mechanical engineer, and his simulations of air rushing through the whistles have been instrumental, no pun intended, uh, back to, the <laughs> to recent attempts to recreate the ceremonial sounds. If you look for videos of the death whistles in action, you'll soon find Xavier, and I can't pronounce uh, the rest of it. Cajas, I would think. Um, yeah. Who has made the instruments out of ceramic, jade, and stone. You can also hear the whistle used in a more haunting, reserved way the, uh, in the work of Mexican-Canadian Cristina Garcia Islas. But I have one from Xavier, and this is from a YouTube video, and we're going to play it. And I'm going to warn you, it is, I didn't think, you know, reading this article, I just didn't think I would be that creeped out it is very creepy so here we go here we go that's a whistle (laughs) yes and so i mean one of them sounds like several people screaming and so if you can imagine hundreds of those it sounded like brake squealing to me at first but uh, <laughs> yeah that, that, it just kept going on and on that was <laughs> that was very creepy now a next story not quite so creepy a little more pleasant uh, and some people may actually be familiar with this especially if you are from the south it involves something called haint blue the color that protects against evil spirits did you know that there's a popular color of paint designed to ward off evil. From a 2017 article by Embry Roberts of Today.com, if you ever had the pleasure of sipping sweet tea on a sun-drenched wraparound porch down south, you might have looked up and found a colorful surprise. Porch ceilings in the American South and parts of the Northeast are almost always painted blue, whether the rest of the home's exterior is white, yellow, pink, or any other color of the rainbow. And it's no coincidence. First, there's the folklore, explained Ellen O'Neill, the director of uh, Strategic Design Intelligence at Benjamin Moore Paints. Then there's the feel-good factor. Colorist intrigued. The folklore piece refers to the concept of haint, a southern variation on the word haunt. 
that refers to a ghost or a spirit. Blue represents water, and apparently spirits, uh, spirits can't traverse water, says O'Neill. People would paint the ceiling, the window trim, and sometimes the doors blue to keep the spirits away. What started as a superstition has since translated into a design trend. No one would think twice about painting the porch blue because their grandmother's porch and their parents' porches were blue also, O'Neill explained. It's permeated into porch design. There's even paint, I think, called porch blue. In fact, the pale blue-green paint uh, tint is now uh, known in design circles as haint blue. Even if you don't believe in ghosts, a blue ceiling adds plenty of benefits from a design perspective. A blue sky is an optimistic thing to look at. It reminds you it reminds us of daybreak. It wards off gloomy weather and delays nightfall, said O'Neill. Painting a ceiling blue brings in nature and the sky. Plus, you don't have to worry about uh, about it clashing with the house. Regardless of the rest of the paint colors, we use houses. Uh, plus, you don't have to worry about it clashing with the rest of the house. Regardless of the rest of the paint colors, we see houses with yellow or pink facades with blue ceilings, and it doesn't look like paint uh, like a paint palette. O'Neill explained, "It looks like it's just the sky." In fact, uh, my wife and I uh, just added a, a patio under our house, and it was a covered patio, and we covered colored the we painted the uh, ceiling of the patio a very pretty blue, just because it does kind of look like the sky. And actually, that blue is, uh, it originated from the indigo dyes that the Gullah Geechee used. The Gullah Geechee are African-Americans who lived in the low country region of the United States of Georgia, Florida, right, South Carolina, and um, in the coastal plains and sea islands. And they... Indigo was was a really big part of their culture. Right. They were the the dyers, and so that's where that paint came from, and that's where that that tradition came yeah, from. I think the name came from there also. Right, paint. Yeah. So we have one last story. This is the lost children of the Alleghenies in a prophetic dream. Uh, this is also in Pennsylvania. We talked about Pennsylvania a lot today. Um, Keystone State. And this was I have relatives there. This is p <laughs> p a oddities blogspot.com. I'm taking it directly from there. Uh, in the spring of 1856, one of the saddest chapters in the history of Bedford County, Pennsylvania, was written. After two young sons of Samuel and Susanna Cox wandered away from their home and into the mountains, the search for the two boys, aged five and seven, lasted for two weeks and culminated in a gruesome discovery beneath a large tree on the shady banks of Gypsy Creek. And had it not been for a prophetic dream, the whereabouts of George and Joseph Cox might still remain a mystery. The strange tale of the lost children of the Alleghenies began on the morning of April 24, 1856, when the boys followed their father into the woods. Samuel Cox, who had just finished breakfast inside his family's primitive log cabin in Spruce Hollow, grabbed his rifle after he had heard his dog barking. Mm -hmm. The dog had managed to tree some small animal, and Samuel, desperate to put meat on the family table for dinner, bolted from the cabin. He was so eager to shoot the trapped animal that he failed to notice that George and Joseph had followed him outside. Life had been hard for the Cox family. Samuel and Susanna had been married in Johnstown and left shortly after the birth of their first child, George. Filled with a pioneer spirit and a des- and desperation to make their own way in the world, they went to Indiana, which was largely wild and unsettled at the time. After a few hard years, they returned to Pennsylvania and settled in Bedford County. 
Samuel Cox cleared a plot of ground in the howling wilderness of Spruce Hollow in the extreme northwestern section of the county near the intersection of Cambria, Somerset, and Blair County lines. Wilderness stretched for hundreds of miles in every direction of the Cox cabin, and at night the cries of panthers and mountain lions pierced the mountain air. During the day, rattlesnakes sunned themselves on boulders and logs. It was a dangerous place, but Samuel viewed it as a paradise. On the morning of April 24th, guided by the barking of his dog, Samuel shot and killed a large squirrel that had been trapped up in the tree. He decided to return to his cabin by taking a different path, and it was that fateful decision he would learn he would live to regret. By taking a different route back to the cabin, he missed the two young boys who were attempting to follow in their father's footsteps. By nightfall, a search party consisting of over 100 men and boys began scouring the woods for the lost children. Mm. This in, it, in itself is remarkable and demonstrates how neighbors looked out for one another back in those days. Honestly, these families were dependent on yeah. each other uh, for their very lives a lot of the times. So even though the telephone had not been invented, and even though the nearest neighbors were a half mile away, every able-bodied man in the region dropped whatever they were doing and rushed to offer their assistance to the pan- panicked family. Word of mouth got around quickly, didn't it? That's right. By the time the search was over, more than 2,000 residents of Bedford, Cambria, Somerset, and Blair counties had taken part. Yet, in spite of the tenacity of the search party, very few clues were found. Many different theories were advanced. Some insisted that the two boys had been kidnapped by a band of gypsies. Others believed that a gang of bandits had sold the children into slavery. Still others pointed their fingers at the Cox family, accusing the parents of murdering their own children. The prevailing opinion, however, was that the children had been devoured by wild beasts. Mm. As the search stretched into the second week, hope began to wane. But Samuel and Susanna refused to give up. They were willing to try anything that could lead them to George and Joseph. They employed the services of an old Negro who had a local reputation for being a voodoo witch doctor. The old man claimed that he could find the lost boys using a divining rod made from the forked branch of a peach tree. When this failed, they turned to a woman in Somerset County who dabbled in the, quote, black arts and supposedly had certain supernatural powers. After two days, that woman was sent back to Somerset County. Mm -hmm. Didn't work. On the 10th night, after the Cox children went missing, a young woman, no, I'm sorry, a young man who lived 15 miles away had a strange dream. This man was Jacob Dibbert, who would later fight in the Civil War. Dibbert dreamed that the two little boys were lying under a birch tree next to a mountain stream. Dibbert had not taken part in the search and had little familiarity with this terrain, so he quickly forgot about his vision, but on the 11th night, he had the same dream. This time, it was a little clearer and seemed more realistic. And on the twelfth night, the dream came again, and in the morning, he told his wife about the disturbing vision. Dibbert's wife, who had been born and raised in the wilds of Bedford County, thought she recognized the landscape described by her husband. She relayed the details of Jacob's dream to her brother, Harrison Wysong. He told the search party about his brother-in-law's prophetic dream, but they laughed. So on the fifteenth day, Dibbert and Wysong ventured into the wilderness alone. Wysong believed that the stream in Jacob's vision was located about seven miles from Spruce Hollow. In the dream, there was a fallen log spanning a swollen creek, and the men found a log like the one in the dream spanning Bob's Creek, which was swollen from the melted mountain snow. The men crossed over and found a path. Dibbert said that they soon would encounter the carcass of a deer lying across the path, and sure enough, a few hundred yards along the trail, they found the dead deer. They were getting close. 
According to Jacob Dibbert, the boys were asleep beneath the branches of a birch tree. In the dream, the tree was different than the others surrounding it. The trunk was bent and twisted, and the top of the tree was split as if it had once been struck by a bolt of lightning. Dibbert and Wysong continued along the path until they spotted that exact tree from the mm. young man's dream. Amazing. But there beneath the branches, they found the lifeless bodies of George and oh. Joseph Cox, who were still remembered to this day as the lost children of the Alleghenies. Mm. The children had apparently died of starvation. Mm. Jacob Dibbert was given a cash reward for finding the lost children that had been offered by a group of concerned citizens from Bedford County, which he then turned over to the grieving parents. It was this reward money that Susanna and Samuel Cox used to purchase the tombstone that marks the graves of George and Joseph at the old Mount Union Cemetery and to erect a stone monument at the site where the lost boys of the Alleghenies were found through the prophetic dream of Jacob Dibbert. The monument marking the spot where the children were found can still be seen today, and we have a picture of it, at Blue Knob State Park. The monument is simple and elegant in design and consists of a square shaft with a pyramidal top. Inscribed on the monument are the words, The lost children of the Alleghenies were found here May 8, 1856, by Jacob Jacob Dibbert and Harrison Wysong. Joseph S. Cox, aged five years, six months, and nine days. Joseph... George C. Cox, aged seven years, one month, and ten days. Children of Samuel and Susanna Cox. Wandered from home April 24th, 1856. Dedicated May 8th, 1906. Interesting. Wow. So sometimes dreams can... can I wonder wonder if he ever wondered. Maybe he should have left on the first night that he had the dream. (laughs) Well, (laughs) if it had been his wife, she would have pestered him and and on the first night and <laughs> probably so yeah <laughs> it took three nights of him dreaming that so now it is time for the trivia oh, challenge yeah. and you have here. you have our challenge today don't you very much so yeah this is a good question so I'll, in dealing with uh, halloween and all things uh, spooky what famous person whose name was eric died on halloween so the answer would be Eric? Eric. Somebody. (laughs) He's known by another name. Yeah, that's actually not uh, the name that most people know him by, but that was his real name. He has a different, more more popular name. So if you want to take part in the trivia challenge, go and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post, and then put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of this post. Okay, so for the trivia challenge for Yo-Ho-Ho... Um, the, the challenge was a seafarer's life was hard work, but there was a lot of downtime too, resulting in many beautiful arts and crafts made by sailors. Their knowledge of intricate knot work helped spread the popularity of macrame, which was a trendy home decor in the seventies and making a comeback. And, uh, I know oh, how I to do macrame. macrame. Oh yeah. I can do it. So if you need a, you know, <laughs> a kitschy little wall hanging. My wife can do tie dye if you like that too. So. <laughs> Uh, so, but this particular marine craft cannot make a comeback since creating it is now strictly prohibited by law. What uh-huh. is this beautiful craft? Well, Nellie Clausen was our winner with the correct answer of Scrimshaw, but I have to say Scrimshaw. that Harbin Gold was an honorable mention because he right. was the first with the correct answer. But even though he won before, right? In spite of that, he commented on the wrong post. Uh oh! So, be careful. Yeah. Eh. Technicality. But he he said, the art of scrimshaw is carvings or scroll work on bones, teeth, and baleen of whales, which is now outlawed due to it being categorized as ivory carving. 
the out, and the outlawing of commercial whaling. He also says, loved the podcast. It brought back a lot of memories, both past and recent. I've spent many years on the ocean working on cruise ships and oil platforms and have met, seen many things that you can only see out on the sea. Outstanding, Harbin. We should interview Harbin yeah. sometime. <laughs> well, and I asked him, I said, hey, let us know what that is. Right. And Nellie, both Nellie and Harbin have been huge supporters of the show from day one. Thank you, so, Nellie. Thank you, Harbin. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah. Drum roll. Yeah. So our octopus now has a name. Yeah. You guys have voted. And uh, and so let's say we had Jules, as in Jules Verne, mm-hmm. uh, had like two one. votes. Henry VIII had two votes. Otto had three votes. And Sir Kraken had seven votes. So Sir Kraken it is. And that, yeah, that was my, and I voted, I voted in that one. Uh, (laughs) Some honorable, well, not honorable mentions, but some other names. Uh, Someone said that they liked number, uh, Jules and Sir Kraken, so they wanted it Sir Jules Kraken. Sir Jules Kraken, oh, that's And then there was Stewie, Stewie. Talaro, (laughs) Octavio. Right, I like that one. Dave. (laughs) I'm not sure where that came from. Dave the Octopus. Army. As in, like, yeah. arms, you Oh, know? Arnie's army, yeah, that's good. And Henry the Hexapus, which <laughs> is supposed to be an obscure... I don't know. I don't know where that came from. But we... Okay, so we put all the people who voted, we put their names in a hat. And, Steve, you want to draw draw a name? Here we go. Reaching into the hat now. <laughs> and the, the name's coming out, and it is... Okay, Simone... Tumulti. Simona. Simona Tumulti. Simona Tumulti. Yes. Simona Tumulti. Yay, so, Simona. Very good. You're the winner. So, Simona, uh, send us an email or uh, at staycurious at remnantstew.com or uh, a Facebook message and give us your address. Because a great, fabulous prize is headed your way. That's right. Uh, Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Philip Sinkfeld is our audio producer. Our music, our theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram. And if you have an idea you'd like to hear us cover in a future episode, send us an email at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Now, before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Maybe take the time to give us a review on iTunes. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, funeral director. (laughs) And until next time, remember, you can make a difference in the world if you will just choose to be kind and And always always stay stay curious. curious.